Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly sponsored by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, an Auckland GP, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Professor John Windsor. Professor Windsor is a general surgeon in Auckland, and he is trained with further fellowships in hepatobiliary, pancreatic, gastroesophageal, laparoscopic surgery. He works at Auckland City Hospital and at the University of Auckland. Privately, he works at the Mercy Hospital in Auckland and specialises in pancreatic, biliary, gastric and esophageal surgery. Welcome, John. Thanks, Louise. So today we're talking about acute pancreatitis. Acute pancreatitis is a common cause of emergency admission to hospital. In Auckland alone, we have approximately 1,000 cases per year presenting to our tertiary hospitals. So, John, I just wonder if we could start by defining what exactly acute pancreatitis is. Sure. So acute pancreatitis literally is inflammation of the pancreas. And the remarkable thing is that this inflammation is the same irrespective of all the different etiologies of acute pancreatitis. So many causes, one pathology. And we recognize two forms of this. There's an edematous pancreatitis where it's just inflammation. And we also, in 20% of cases, have necrotizing pancreatitis where there's the inflammation. But in addition to that, some of the pancreas dies and sets the scene for subsequent problems. So talking about incidence of acute pancreatitis. Yeah, the, the incidence in Auckland is, as you said, about a thousand cases. We get about 300 a year at Auckland Hospital itself. Um, the national incidence uh, varies with region to region. And I would highlight that in South Auckland, there's a particularly high incidence of acute pancreatitis. And I think that's because of the convergence of the common causes. If you think about alcohol and gallstones, hyperlipidemia, obesity is an independent risk factor, and gallstones, all of these causes converge often in, uh, in our Polynesian and Maori people. And in fact, Maori female have been found to have the highest incidence of acute pancreatitis of any ethnic subgroup in the whole world. And that's 95 to 100 per 100,000. So we've touched on risk factors. Are there any other risk factors or causes that we should think about with acute pancreatitis? About 70% to 80% of all patients can be covered by the two main causes, gallstones and alcohol. But there is a very long list of alternative or additional causes. And I think hyperlipidemia, which is the commonest cause in China, is of increasing importance. Uh, we recognize that hypercalcemia, we recognize certain drugs, uh, we have tumors, so pancreatic cancer can cause this by, by obstructing the duct. Um, and the list goes on to include um, unusual things like um, um, scorpion bites. Um, one of the things that um, is very important when we review these patients that we do have a complete drug history of these patients because the wide range of drugs can cause acute pancreatitis. Talking drugs, mm -hmm. what are the top five drugs that we should think about with this? Um, steroids um, are, are, are interesting because uh, steroids not only cause it, but we also use that to treat autoimmune pancreatitis. Um, azathioprine is common, uh, common cause. But to be honest, in my own practice, if I think drugs might be a cause, I look up every single one because I can't remember the side effects of all the different drugs, but always suspect drugs if you can't find a cause. 
And in the pediatric population, I think mumps and some of the virus viral causes are important to notice as well. So we have a patient, it's Friday afternoon at 4.30. How, how, what's the most common form of presentation of acute pancreatitis? Yeah. So pain is the common presentation. Patients may have a prodrome of feeling a little bit off, but really the escalating severe constant epigastric pain, which almost always radiates through to the, the pancreatic region in the back, which is sort of um, low thoracic upper lumbar region in the midline because the pancreas is a retroperitoneal organ you feel it in the back so that escalating severe constant pain is the feature of acute pancreatitis but of course it's the feature of many other causes of acute abdominal pain as well and so the diagnostic criteria for acute pancreatitis have now been worked out you need two of three criteria you have pain that's typical of acute pancreatitis you then have to have an elevated uh, pancreatic enzyme. We prefer lipase now over, over amylase, and we have to have a level that's greater than three times the upper limit of normal. If there's a delayed presentation, the enzyme level may not be up, the pain may not be typical. So in that circumstance, we have a third criteria, which is do a cross-sectional imaging, usually with CT scan, and in that way, make the diagnosis. So that's the diagnostic criteria. You've mentioned lipase rather than amylase. Would you mind talking about that for a moment? Sure. There's two things here. One is that amylase can be, can be elevated with a wide range of conditions, um, from parotitis to perforated duodenal ulcer, aortic aneurysms, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's not that specific. The other problem with amylase is that the level drops off quite quickly. So that if the patient comes in 36, 48 hours or more after the onset of pain, the amylase might well be within the, uh, within the normal range or within the three times upper limit of normal and not be diagnostic. So lipase um, is more specific for the pancreas and it lasts longer so, and it's no more expensive. Uh, so we need to see a shift towards using lipase as the diagnostic enzyme of choice. Thanks for clarifying that, John. So we've got a patient, we're thinking pancreatitis. What would the red flags be or the things that would require urgent admission to hospital? I or should we be referring everyone? Yes, I think that is the case, Louise. Every single patient with a suspected diagnosis of acute pancreatitis should be admitted. The reason for that is that we cannot at the bedside or with routine blood tests in the 24 hours accurately predict which patients are going to be severe. 20 to 25% of patients are going to get necrotizing pancreatitis. That may not be apparent. The other thing is that the leading cause of death from acute pancreatitis is organ failure within the first week, and that can come on very quickly. You know, a, just a little bit of tachypnea in the, in the surgery might actually go to full-blown ARDS requiring ventilation within 12 hours. So I think if you really think that you've got a patient with acute pancreatitis, you've confirmed it with a lipase, that patient must be referred uh, for acute admission. This is not something to sit on. The other area that really concerns me is the patient who's got acute pancreatitis related to gallstones. That gallstone might still be in the bile duct. And so patients can become very sick with acute pancreatitis if they have concomitant cholangitis. So picking those patients who've got cholangitis is also difficult, and that patient requires urgent ERCP within the first 24 hours. Again, not the kind of patient you'd want to sit on. So we've got our patient, we're thinking they need to be admitted to hospital. They will often ask us, what's going to happen when I arrive at hospital? What am I going to expect? What should we be telling our patients? I think it's important to convey that the 
course of acute pancreatitis is highly variable and there's a wide range of things that can happen. Fortunately, you know, three quarters of the patients have a mild self-limiting disease. And if they've got gallstones, they're going to need to have a cholecystectomy before they leave hospital because that's the best time to do it. If they've got alcohol as the cause, then that needs to be addressed. Smoking is an independent risk factor as well, and that should be addressed as well. So that's three quarters of the patients. There is the quarter of patients who are going to have a complicated, potentially long admission. And to be honest, infected pancreatic necrosis has a mortality risk of 30 to 50%. All right, so this is a really severe disease not to be trifled with. And those patients really need to be in the, in the hospital from the beginning so that we can pick early the deterioration that is the hallmark of infection of the necrosis so that we can have timely intervention. So these patients need to be in a specialist unit. I think that a, a general hospital can deal with acute pancreatitis, but they too need to be alert to the patient that's got potentially complicated disease, early organ failure or late infection with organ failure. Those patients are going to need to be transferred to a tertiary center. So the management within the hospital, mm -hmm. what happens to our patients? We do three things when they come through the door. We want to make the diagnosis or confirm the diagnosis. Uh, we want to um, start investigations for the cause, and we want to predict the severity. From there, after we've dealt with those three things, we then um, have some very important things to do. One is obviously to establish analgesia. So pain relief is important. And traditionally, people have avoided morphine because of concerns about sphincter body uh, spasm. Actually, we use morphine liberally, and, and it doesn't seem to be a problem. So our perioperative analgesic regime is what we use for our pancreatitis patients to establish good analgesia from the beginning. Second thing to do with these patients is to um, establish an IV line um, and to give them fluids. Now, the problem with intravenous fluid therapy and acute pancreatitis is we don't know how much to give. We don't know how fast to give it. We don't know how to monitor it. Having said that, we do have guidelines. The important thing is not to under-resuscitate or over-resuscitate, so finding an optimal amount. So we seek normovolemia, um, re-establishing of urine output, uh, and be very careful not to overdo it because edema in the lungs and the heart, the kidneys can actually contribute to organ failure. So that's analgesia and fluid therapy. Um, we then think about nutrition and the latest evidence is that we don't have to push that hard to begin with as we used to with enteral tube feeding. We let patients drink and eat what they want for the first few days. If they're not able to eat enough or they get pain with eating, uh, then we'll establish enteral tube feeding, nasogastric or nasojejunal, and give them support that way. If the patient has got persisting cholestasis, and particularly if we're concerned about co acute cholangitis, uh, we'll need to arrange an ERCP, sphincterotomy, duct clearance to establish bile drainage to, to deal with that. But cholestasis itself is not necessarily an indication for acute intervention. Remembering that ERCP can make pancreatitis worse uh, so we have to be careful not to overuse that uh, modality. The other thing that's very important in this early phase of management is to monitor how the patient is doing. So we have a clinical evaluation at the bedside. We have CRP done daily, and we also use CT, repeat CT scans if we're concerned. So often patients will, with moderately severe pancreatitis will have two or three weeks in hospital but settle without any overt complications other than maybe transient organ failure. 
that is um, tachypnea and, and oxygen dependence for 48 hours or less, for instance. But a patient who develops infection of the necrosis in the pancreas will have a very stormy course. And there's now good evidence that uh, open surgery is no longer required. In fact, open surgery, I think, pushes people towards organ failure by adding insult to injury. Not a good move. So what we try to do is, is take a step up approach now so that if a person deteriorates, the CRP has gone over 300, we do another CT scan, we find a collection uh, with some solid material within it, which is the necrosum. There may be free gas within that collection that patient's got infection, and so our initial approach is drainage, either done endoscopically, and that's with EUS-guided transgastric drainage into the collection behind the stomach, or if it's in the flanks, we'll do a percutaneous drain. And it's amazing how that heat comes out of the fire. The patient regroups, their organ dysfunction improves, and we can wait. What we're waiting for is for the collection to wall itself off, to become encapsulated. When it becomes encapsulated, you can really do what you, what you, what you want inside that because the patient's not going to be affected. So it's, most of these patients will come forward for some form of debridement, which means either endoscopically or percutaneously, we pass a scope into the collection and pull out the dead material, allow good effective drainage, and that patient will recover. Um, so that's hap that happens in, in uh, 10 or 15% of patients that we have to go through the drainage debridement sequence. So our patients been in hospital, been sent home to us, what is it that we need to think about following this, this illness, John? Yeah, so the patients with mild to moderate disease um, are going to need a cholecystectomy. Uh, they're going to need to have other risk factors addressed on an ongoing basis. The alcohol, the smoking, the obesity, hypertriglyceridemia, hypercalcemia, these things will need to be addressed, usually in the context of uh, the pancreas clinic and hospital, but obviously working with the GP to help this patient um, reduce the risk of ongoing attacks. Patients with severe pancreatitis who've had this complicated course, if they've had interventions, have had necrosis of the pancreas, we need to be very concerned about some of the sequelae. So these patients might develop pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. Pancreatic exocrine insufficiency will be treated with uh, enzyme supplementation. Um, one of the problems is that steatorrhea doesn't occur until more than 90% of the asana secretion is impaired. So we actually need a relatively low threshold for enzyme supplementation. These patients have lost weight, have lost condition. We want them to improve quickly and recover. And so I would have a low threshold for giving them enzyme supplementation, if only for a month or two, to help with their absorption. Uh, another important finding actually out of our own research group has been that diabetes occurs in up to 22% of patients within five years of an attack of necrotizing pancreatitis. Now that's a really high risk subgroup for diabetes. And so if a patient's had severe pancreatitis, they need to be screened with HbA1c, et cetera, um, you know, for at least five years. That's not in the current guidelines yet, but that's a definite finding being confirmed around the world. So that's important. Um, there are sequelae to uh, the necrotizing pancreatitis. Your patient might come home with a percutaneous drain that will require district nursing. It's often sore because enzyme-rich fluid irritates the skin. Um, 
you know, we need to be managing that in the pancreas clinic as well to make sure that the patient, you know, can have that out. They may develop an external fistula, uh, which may require octreotide. Uh, they may end up getting a stricture of the pancreatic duct and end up in a, a, a cycle of recurrent acute pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis. And we want to detect that uh, stricture so that we can endoscopically dilate it or resect some of the pancreas to try and circumvent this problem. So there are a number of things that can happen after the patient goes home, but I, these patients are followed closely by the hospital and uh, hopefully liaising well with their family doctors uh, to ensure that we get a good outcome. So thank you for talking to us today, John. I just wonder for our listeners, what would your take home messages be from this podcast, please? I guess the first one is to make sure that a patient with suspected or confirmed acute pancreatitis is admitted to hospital. Uh, Secondly, that uh, addressable risk factors are addressed and that's going to require um, attention after the patient goes home. Um, sometimes a cholecystectomy is forgotten, for instance, in a patient with complicated disease, and uh, reminding us of that sometimes um, happens. Um, in addition, I think that uh, we need to address the nutritional deficiencies so that if the patient's lost, often they do lose five to 10 kilograms in weight during the hospital, then we'll have given them dietitian advice, but following through on that in the community, I think, is important. Uh, there's the psychological trauma of a long hospital stay and uh, you know support in that area is, is important. We can't always provide that in the hospital at the time. Um, I think it's important to remember that there's a subgroup of patients who have a high mortality similar to an acute coronary syndrome for instance and these patients um, require intensive care um, and a prolonged hospital admission and um, there may be consequences of that in terms of exocrine and endocrine dysfunction. We should be screening for that, particularly for diabetes over the first five years. Thank you for talking to us today, John. It's been a pleasure. If you're a New Zealand health professional and would like to claim CME points, please visit our website, www.goodfellow.org. Thank you for listening.